I want to start by reading actually a Thanksgiving passage to you. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read to you. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, three bullet point verses. The Apostle Paul has been describing external behaviors towards others, uh, such as you know, your, your leaders admonishing one another, don't pay no, do not pay evil for evil to one another. And then in verses 16 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there are these three bullet points of our internal attitude towards God. And here they are. Here they are. Ready for them? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And you've heard me say this before. This is one of those passages where if you're ever wondering, what is God's will for your life? Here it is. Rejoice always. Bible trivia, shortest verse in the Bible, in the Greek. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, not necessarily for everything, but in every circumstance, in, in everything. Give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This coming Thursday is, is a holiday. What is it? Um, yeah, Thanksgiving. And Betsy and I are excited because we've got all of our kids in, uh, coming in town uh, who will be with us, who, who will not be with us for Christmas. So we're going to make the most of the time. We've been, we've been configuring and reconfiguring tables and chairs for the 32 people from our family and extended family. And it's going to be a challenge. And in my flesh, in my flesh, I want... The messy eaters over a cleanable floor and not over the new carpet in the living room. Yeah, don't judge me. You all know you're thinking the same things. <laughs> you would do the same thing. You know what I'm talking about. And if the carpet gets messed up, I'll live. Thanksgiving is actually my, my favorite holiday. Commercialization is minimal. And uh, uh, the focus is on family and friends together. And being thankful. And, and you can't be thankful unless it's to something greater than yourself. So e even those who celebrate Thanksgiving who are atheists are, are at least nudged beyond themselves uh, on this holiday. And I love that. Uh, in Romans 8, which has been our ongoing study um, these last few weeks, the verses that we just read give us something very specific to be thankful for, for which to give thanks. And that is your adoption into the family of God, your sonship, the fact that we are sons and daughters of God, His children. And also, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with or joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, look again at Romans 8.14. I'm sorry, ver, uh, verse uh, uh, yeah, 14. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So there's the sonship again. You've not received a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption as sons. And then the cry, Abba, Father. And then verse 16, we are the children of God. Verse 17, if children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. All of these truths revolving around family relationships. And, and by the way, uh, I always read a passage to the group that's gathered at our house. And this 
this uh, Sunday, I'm going to read this one from the, from this passage and then probably preach this sermon while everybody's waiting to get to the food. But it, isn't it isn't it a glorious truth, something to be thankful for that you belong, you belong to this eternal family, the circle of sisters and band of brothers together in the body of Christ. And I love it when my blood family is also my eternal family. Uh, that that's a that's a, a a reason to rejoice as well. But some of you I know did not uh, come from loving families. Some of you came from families where your the love that you received was on a performance basis. If you if you didn't behave a certain way, if you didn't perform according to a certain standard, the love was withheld or, or worse. I, I know that some of you are from those kinds of backgrounds. Isn't it, isn't it a glorious truth that God has adopted us into his family and has created these relationships for us with one another so that we're brothers and sisters together in an eternal relationship? If you look around this room, this room is filled with people who will spend eternity together. And that is a glorious truth. Now, last Sunday, we said that because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, just a little bit of review. In verses 12 and 13, we said we have a new enablement. Uh, God illumines, uh, God's Spirit illumines God's Word in us so that we recognize the flesh for what it is. And sin no longer has claim on us or has the authority over us, the ability to impose a penalty. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But that penalty was paid. That certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. So the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So that's been paid in full. We've got a new enablement now by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in verses 14, verse 14, we have a new identity. We're no longer slaves to sin, but instead we're bond slaves to Jesus Christ. And we're also sons of God. And, and because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we live in both knowledge and experience of this truth. We said last week also that we have a new motivation. In the first part of verse 15, we obey God not from fear, but from love because... We also have a new relationship in verse 15. We've been adopted as God's children, and now we cry out, Abba, Father. And notice the contrast in these verses between fear and love. Fear, again, the verse mentions, but the term Abba refers to a total lack of fear. In one sense, as I mentioned last week, in one sense, adoption is where God says to us, you're mine. And the cry, Abba, Father, is where we say to God, and you're mine. Not in the sense of, of authority or earning it or deserving it, but by grace, we call him Father. We call him Abba. And when you're, you're hurt or you're joyful, you run to him. And when you're covered with the dirt of sin, you run to him. That's what the cry means. Today we go forward in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 8. But I want us to back up for just a moment and consider the word adoption. There are several 
family metaphors in Scripture that describe our relationship with God. I mean, just two of them are we're well familiar with. One is being born again or born from above. And the other is being adopted. Now, in human experience, there's a difference between natural birth and adoption. One's about biology and genetics, and the other is about law and choices. But when it comes to being God's child, in God's eyes, there is no difference. The issue is not some sort of spiritual, mystical genetics, but love and commitment. This church is filled with families who have adopted children. Right? We love this doctrine. But did you know uh, that November is also National Adoption Awareness Month? (laughs) Well, a lot of the families here would, would inform you about that. And the families here will tell you that there is no difference in their love and their commitment to their adopted children. They are the same. But the word adoption means different things in different countries and different cultures and different legal systems. What the word adoption means to you is different than what it meant in New Testament times. So what did it mean in New Testament times? Because clarifying the legal meaning of this first century word adoption helps clarify the doctrine and I believe makes it even richer for us. Now, I want you to hang in there with me because I want to teach you a little bit about the doctrine of adoption. And I, I've given some notes in your um, your bulletin if you want to follow along some of the points. The term adoption is used five times in the New Testament, all of them by Paul. Three of them are in Romans. Two of them are in this chapter, Romans chapter 8. The next one is in chapter 9. In the first century, fosterage, being a foster parent, did exist. Succession as an heir, did exist. Those were practiced. But in neither of those practices did the person truly become a part of a family. So why did Paul inspire, I mean, why did the Spirit inspire Paul to use this term? What's so significant about it? And I want you to think about the sign that was above the cross of Jesus. It was written in Hebrew or Aramaic and in uh, the, the Hebrew cognate language. Or in, 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 in Greek and in Latin. Those three cultures. The Jewish culture, the Greek culture, and the Roman culture. And so when you talk about adoption, are we talking about Jewish adoption? Or Greek adoption? Or Roman adoption? What was Paul speaking about? Now, let's, let's uh, kind of tease this out a little bit. Jewish adoption did not exist until 57 years ago. There was no Jewish laws about adoption. Of course, the state of Israel came into existence in 1948. In 1960, they put in their books laws about adoption. Uh, In in the Old Testament times, uh, the Jews would perpetuate the the line through a male child in various ways. One uh, was through the continuation through any male child. For example, Jephthah was the son of a harlot. But his father, Gilead, acknowledged him, and so he was to inherit. Sarah tried to have her child, unquote, uh, through 
Hagar, her handmaid with with Abraham. The most extreme case of this was Lot's daughters who were going to get a son at any cost, including incest. So there was a continuation of the male line through any male child. And there was also the continuation of the male line through what was called leveret marriage. In the book of Deuteronomy, you can see a little bit of it, echoes of it in the book of Ruth. This is where um, if a brother died, his brother or nearest relative would marry the widow if he was single and raise sons in the name of the brother so that his line and his name would continue in the land. This is very different, though. It presupposes the death of the person whose line is to continue. So all I'm saying is most people, many people might read this and say, oh, he's talking about Jewish adoption. Well, no, he's not. It didn't exist. (laughs) It doesn't fit at all. It doesn't fit at all. Okay, well, is he talking about Greek adoption? The Greeks practiced adoption, and they had laws that governed its use. And this is in the midst of Greco-Roman culture, so maybe that's it. Well, in Greek adoption, Greek adoption was practiced usually with a person who was already in the family. Uh, They would adopt a nephew or a second cousin or something like that. Uh, in Greek laws, when an outsider would be adopted, they had the, the, the person who was doing the adopting had to show legal cause why they had adopted an outsider rather than a blood relative. Uh, but the whole point of biblical adoption is that God adopts us outside from his family. He brings us in. Also in Greek adoption, the relationship between The natural family and the adoptive parents is really weird because in Greek adoption, the child remained legally related to the natural mother mother and legally related to the adoptive father. So the mother from the first family, the father from the second family, not the father from the first family and the mother from the second family. There was no legal ties there. So that was just strange. You had one foot in each family. Is that what Paul's talking about? One foot in the flesh and one foot. No, that's not what he's talking about, is it? A third point, the Greeks placed restrictions on what the adopted child could do with the inherited estate in contrast to what a natural heir could do. So uh, an adoptive child couldn't do certain things that a naturally born child could. In other words, it was not the full rights of sonship. Fourth, Greek laws... Some Greek, they could put a stipulation in there, and this was done, that the adopted son had to father a son himself, continuing the family name, or else the adoption could be voided. You could lose your sonship. How about that? And fifth, the adopted son was under the father's authority, apart from property rights, until coming of age and and there was a coming of age ceremony but after that ceremony after the coming of age the adopted son was no longer under the authority of the father does that fit with scripture does this sound like what paul had in mind absolutely not no it would be historically inconsistent for paul to be speaking about jewish adoption it'd be biblically inconsistent for him to be speaking about greek adoption the five places in the epistles where adoption is specifically mentioned by name are in Roman context with 
dense Roman populations. And the three times that we're looking at in, is in the book of Romans. Okay? Paul's own citizenship was Roman by birth, which meant both father and mother had to be Roman citizenship, uh, Roman citizens. So he, he was familiar with the laws governing his own rights. It was in the Roman Empire. That's what he's talking about. So here, here's the deal. Here's what, I'm saying all that to get to this. In Roman adoption, the property, the time, the personal life of the adopted child were under the authority of the father, including the right to discipline, which fits well with Hebrews chapter 12. In Roman adoption, that authority of the father remained. In Roman adoption, the relationship and that authority continued until the father died. There was no legal coming of age. There was no family separation. In Roman adoption, when you entered that family, all old ties were severed. All debts were paid from you before. All connections were, stopped, were, were ceased. All obligations to your old life were canceled. In Roman adoption, the relationship with the new family was full, unrestricted sonship. And you have to be have to be a little bit careful about pressing details too far. Uh, and it's an argument from silence. But there is no record anywhere of Roman adoption being voidable. In other words, it seems that you couldn't lose your status as son. Francis Lyell, who is an emeritus professor of law at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, is known for his expertise in Roman law. And here's where I'm, this is one of the main sources I'm getting this information from. It's a book called Slaves, Citizens, and Sons, Legal Metaphors in the Epistles. It's a real page turner. Actually, I love the book. I totally love it. I've, been, I've corresponded with, with the author uh, a couple of years ago. A really sweet man. Um, and, and he writes this about Roman adoption. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read, just hang with me and li listen to this statement. All of this, Roman adoption, is exactly what the doctrines of election, justification, and sanctification imply. The believer is taken out of his former state and is put in a new relationship with God. He is a part of God's family forever with reciprocal rights and duties. All his time, property, and energy should from that point on be brought under God's control. The Roman ideas of adoption with the inherent concept of the Father's power are therefore peculiarly useful illustration of profound doctrines, affording a depth of understanding and appeal that are simply not present in any other possible interpretation of the language. And in all the elements of the metaphor, the imagery lays wonderful stress on the personal nature of the relationships involved. We are adopted to become children of God. Unquote. Friends, that's just good news. That is good news. That adoption is even stronger than what we have. And it's a joy. So, so far, what we've said is because of the work of the Holy Spirit, 
we have newness in our lives. We have a new enablement. We have a new identity. We have new motivation. We have a new relationship. And I want you to follow the argument here. In verse 14, walking according to the Spirit is described in the terms of being led by the Spirit, which is radically different from walking in the flesh. Walking in the flesh is slavery. And in verse 15, we read that the flesh uses fear as its motivator. But as Romans 8, 2 says, we have been set free from the law of sin and of death. And this freedom is described in verse 15 as the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. In verse 16, the spirit also grants us an internal assurance that we are God's children. That's a new assurance that we have. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness or testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There's a three-word phrase here. Bears witness with. And those three words are one Greek word. It's used only three times in the New Testament. This is one of them. And the other two times... The term place, the, the, the meaning of the term bears witness with really means to testify to, to testify to. Here's the point. The spirit does not endorse what our own spirits think. In other words, the spirit does not stand alongside our human spirits And the Holy Spirit look at what our human spirits are thinking and say what he says. That's not it. The Holy Spirit is speaking to our human spirit. And affirming within us who we are. And that's what we must listen to. We are children of God. Testifying to us. Our own spirits have no standing here. The spirit confirms to our spirit. And this is a truth that God wants us to believe, to embrace, and to have as a source of comfort in our lives. So we have this new assurance in verse 16. And in verse 17, we have a new inheritance. If children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And I want you to notice the progression that's happened over really all the way through the book of Romans. From being a slave to sin, to being a bond slave to Jesus Christ, to being a child of God, to being an heir of God, to being co-heirs with Christ. And there's a sense in which once you leave being a slave to sin and become a slave to Christ, all those things are a part of the package of what God has for you. I am now a slave of Christ. I am now an heir of God. I am now co-heir with Jesus Christ. All of those who have that relationship with him, that is our standing. And the the word heirs may sound strange to you because when do you inherit? Well, when the person dies. Is God going to die the father? Absolutely not. God the son died for our sins but rose again from the dead. Being an heir in the New Testament meaning of the term is that by grace, you have this standing of privilege. And your future possession and your future position are both secure. You are not a child of the king. 
You are a child of the king of kings. That is your standing before God. And and that's why chapter eight ends with, you know, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns us? What will separate us from the love of Christ? You are a child of the king of kings. Who's going to mess with you? You get it? This is your standing before God in Jesus Christ. Now, think about those two terms, heirs and co-heirs or fellow heirs. And by the way, those are not different things or the second one uh, is really a deeper explanation of, of the first. We are God's sons by grace. So let's make sure that we get this. We are God's sons by grace. Jesus is God's son by his being, by his nature. That's a different kind of sonship. So we are fellow heirs with Christ. But what that means is that Christ is the supreme heir. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. Listen to this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. Now, listen to if, if you take away all the phrases, all the all the dependent clauses, prepositional phrases. Here's what that reduces to God has spoken. Which is really the theme of the book of Hebrews, God has spoken to us in his son. What does he say about the son? You ready? Whom he appointed heir. Of all. So if you are co-heirs with Christ, does that mean that you are co-heirs of all things? Well, exactly what do we inherit? Whatever he shares with us. Exactly what do we inherit? Okay. I don't know. Sorry. Hebrews 1, 2 says all things. I love Ephesians 1, 3 that gives thanks to God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not here on earth. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And as I've mentioned to you before, what does every spiritual blessing mean? That's not every spiritual blessing that I can think of or that you can think of or that we collectively can think of, but that God can think of. Everything is ours that God has given us. Listen to these words from first John chapter three. See how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. And I want you to listen to the time words here. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So there's a, a future reality that will unfold that we don't fully understand right now, but it's coming. It is our standing right. It is it is ours, our possession, our position, but it's not been fulfilled yet. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him 
That is the anticipation of the reality of what that inheritance is going to be based upon the grace of God and Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So what is our inheritance? I don't know. But I think it's pretty amazing. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? Now we see in a glass darkly, but then. Now I know in part, but then. I will know fully, even as I am fully known. Which says we will be smarter in heaven than we are here. It's not going to be dumb and dumber. So we see darkly, but then. You know, eye has not seen, ear has heard, neither has entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, you don't have categories for this. You don't have an understanding. I don't have the ability to grasp what is ahead for us. I live in a three-dimensional world. God's not limited by anything. What is that reality going to be like for us? I don't know, but it's going to be pretty good. Remember when Paul was given a glimpse of heaven. Um, caught up into the third heaven. And then he speaks about himself. He can't even speak about it in the, thir- in, the, in the first person. He speaks about it in the third person. Such a man caught up in the third heaven. And then he describes how this affected him. I saw, I saw things that I couldn't utter. I saw things that I'm not allowed to speak about. He didn't come back and write a book about it. Instead, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Paul had a glimpse of what that was. But you know what? If he had shared what it was, I think we'd have too many denominations because we don't have the ability to understand the details of it and we'd be trying to figure it out and and, and it would be incomprehensible to us. I, I know I'm belaboring this point, but my goodness, this is a great point to belabor. What do we inherit? I don't know. But it's all things. Every spiritual blessing. The things that God has thought of for us. Um, we're going to pick up this study in Romans 8 at the end of verse 17 next week. Wow, we're going to finish a verse. But my question in closing is this. Do you believe this? Now, the gospel is clear. We stand as sinners before a holy God. We can't save ourselves God took the initiative that that chasm of sin that separated us from God uh, is not something that we could that we could uh, uh, cross. But God took the initiative and, and, and he became the bridge. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and lived a sinless life and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we can say in the words of Romans six twenty three, the the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And here is our standing from John 1. He came to his own, and those who were his own, the majority of his Jewish brethren, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, 
even to those who believe on his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just as with physical birth, your spiritual birth is on God's initiative. It's not on your own. Jesus paid it all. If you if you have not entered into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that today. Do you believe this? Is is this something that you have come to grips with? If if you're going to have a generic Thanksgiving on Thursday, whom are you going to thank and for what? If you have entered into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe. Maybe your complaint is that you don't feel. Like it at times, you don't feel like a child of God and you want to feel like you are and. When that happens, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm doubting the truth of God's word. I'm allowing Satan to rob me of the joy of being a child of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. And Satan does not have that power over me. And he doesn't have that power over you if you belong to Jesus. One scholar put it this way. All too often, a believer may come to the point of doubting his salvation because his sanctification has proceeded so slowly and so lamely. The spirit, however, does not base his assuring testimony on progress or the lack of it in the Christian life. He does not lead us to cry, I am God's child. Rather, he leads us to call upon God as father, to look away from ourselves to him who established the relationship. So I ask again, do you believe this? You're standing as heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ has nothing to do with you and your progress in godliness. It has everything to do with your position and your standing in Christ. Do you believe this? Father, we thank you.